just because something isn't tested doesn't mean it doesn't work. And that's the other thing, because like there are small brands that make incredible products, but don't have the capital to do an $80,000, $100,000 clinical study. And it's like, okay, you look at reviews, you look at word of mouth, you look at influencers, you look at all those other things that also matter. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's clinical trials time. So we were like... WTF mate, we feel like we don't know what the hell's going on when a brand says that like 78% of users thought their hair grew longer or whatever. It's like, well, how do you know they didn't just consult the office? Yeah. Did a little bush league going around to the cubicles to be like, did you try this hair serum? And also, if you do do that, is that okay? Yeah. Like, is that fine? Is that normal? Is that legal? Also, if you're doing an actual trial with like a third party... What about those is not right? What about those is not consistent? Right. Like what is regulated and what is not, if at all? Yes. What are the rules? What are the rules? So we decided let's talk to someone that knows this. The ins and outs of clinical trials. Someone whose life's work revolves around them. Mm-hmm. And that would be Dr. Julian Sass. Y'all AKA. may know him. Yes. Scamander. Scamander 14. We were like, sir, sir, is Scamander something we should be familiar with? He said, absolutely not. But we love it anyways. So Dr. Julian Sass, he is a clinical trials expert. He is a content creator and a sunscreen fanatic. He has tested and cataloged over 300 sunscreens in his extensive sunscreen database, which if you are not following Scamander 14 and looking at this database, it is truly his life's work and he is so helpful in doing so. He is known for his succinct and honest reviews of how sunscreens work with his skin. After spending six years working towards his PhD in biomathematics and statistics where he studied clinical trials and mathematical modeling, he joined the beauty industry as a director of research and education. He now develops protocols for clinical trials, educates consumers, and helps develop new skincare products. He does it all. And he is a wealth of information. We both love him. We are thrilled for you to listen more about not only some of his favorite products, but also the wild world of clinical trials. Well, isn't it none other than Dr. Sass? (laughs) Hearing it out loud is so nice. Like it's been the amalgamation of six years of pain and heartache. And here we are. Here we are, baby. Here we are. Julian, thank you for joining us. We have a lot to pick your brain about. 
There's a lot of things that we don't know that you do know. So we're going to, <laughs> we're going to make sure that we get to all of it. But wait, hold on. Can you tell me what does Scamander stand for? Or is, am I even saying that properly? Your username? It doesn't stand for anything. And it's so funny because it was a name that I heard when I was a kid. And I was like, ooh, I like this in, in a book. And then when I started my content, I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to use that name. And when I first heard that name, I was 14. So here we go. It's very stupid. <laughs> it sounds like a Pokemon to me. <laughs> yes, I'm into it. I love it. I love it. People must call you Scamander like all the time. All the time, which is fine, which is fine. <laughs> Your alias is Scamander, Dr. Scamander. So if you're following Julian online, well, if you're not, like, what are you doing with your life? But if you are, you know him as Scamander. He has this amazing, amazing sunscreen database, okay? Like, this is what put him on the map. This man is doing the Lord's work. He is not afraid to be like, oh, no white cast, you say? what is this on my face then? Why do I have a white cast? And he uses the exact amount that you're supposed to be using on your face to create this database, okay? So we have to ask you, what is on your face, Julian? Like, what are you loving? What are some brands that you like to wear on a regular basis? I, in general, like when I'm going for like sunscreens, things like that, I almost always go for non-US formulas because the formulas are nicer. There's better protection. It's just better in every way because in the US with the FDA, it's a nightmare with getting new filters approved. So I like to go to Japan or Korea or going to Europe or even Australia just for like, okay, these are my like nice things that I like to wear. Um, but in general, right now, I'm wearing the Eucerin oil control. I love the Eucerin products outside of the U.S. Really, really nice. It's matte without being too matte. Like, it's not like all the moisture is being sucked out of my face. But like, have just a lot of, like, matte sunscreens. Like, I still have a little bit of glow, but it's like, oh, I just don't feel greasy which is very, very nice. And then I have the SPF lip balm from O'Keefe's, which is like, the only SPF lip balm that I enjoy because a lot of them, I get like little white bits on my mouth and it's just an absolute nightmare. Ew. <laughs> yeah, disgusting. But yeah, like those have been my, like, my go-tos recently because I try so many. I try a new sunscreen almost every single day. Like I have so many backlogged and if there's anything that I like enough to come back to it, it's like, okay, this is like really, really good. Why is a formula made outside of the U.S. better to you? So outside of the U.S., there are higher standards when it comes to protection from UVA. So if you're not familiar, there's like two kinds of the UV rays that damage your skin. There's a UVB, which is the rays that burn, and there's UVA, which is the rays that age. So in the U.S., basically, the only thing they have to do is just broad spectrum, which essentially just means that a certain amount of the protection has to be UVA, but it's basically, it's like a pass fail. But when you are going into Europe or going to Australia or going into East Asia, they have, okay, your formulas protect this much against UVA. 
Because like for the SPF that says, okay, this is how much UVB protection you're getting. And they have those same standards for UVA outside of the US. So you can look at a formula and go, oh, this is going to have a lot or not as much UVA protection. You can kind of gauge where you're going to go from there. But in the US, it's just broad spectrum. You have no idea how much UVA protection you're you're getting. Like there are formulas that I've seen that have an SPF of over 100, but a UVA PF of like nine. <laughs> so that are in the U.S. And that's because they test differently outside of the U.S., right? Yeah, exactly. So for SPF, it's all the same, but there are additional tests that they use in Europe, in Japan, Korea, and Australia that kind of like add on to the amount of protection that they can claim on the packaging, which is annoying because I wish that we had that here, but it is what it is. Yeah. Can we lobby for that? <laughs> I didn't know that. Australia was also ahead of the game. I mean, I guess I should assume because they also are like so close to the ozone. Oh, yeah. The Australian sunscreens have like probably the strictest standards for everything. Their water resistant sunscreens, they have up to four hours of water resistance and they have to stay at that SPF for the entire test. So it's like someone has to basically get in and out of a bath over and over for a total of four hours. And when they test at the end, it has to be very close to the starting SPM. So they go hard. That's amazing. Yeah. It is. And I follow some content creators who are based in Australia and I wasn't really following, but I do remember them talking about how like standards changed for influencers, I guess, talking about sunscreens. Yeah, which is such a shame. So basically, as I understand it, I'm not from Australia, but like, if you got a sunscreen in like PR, then you can just talk about it in a very objective way. You can't say how it performed on your skin, like, oh, I liked this, I didn't like that, whatever, because it's so medical and clinical there, and you're giving an opinion on a medical product. It's a lot, 100%. It's like pharma here. So if a sunscreen brand wants to advertise with a content creator in Australia, it's almost like they would have to go through the same rigorous scripting and all of that stuff, like legally for sunscreen in Australia. That is crazy. I mean, it makes sense, but also it's... It's a shame. Yeah. You don't have to get it prescribed, so... Yeah, it's hard. And it's like, oh man, because there are so many like Australian content creators who make such incredible sunscreen reviews. And now it's like, well, now I can't really do that. So pivot. <laughs> they got to pivot. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So we, as Kirby said, have you on so that you can educate us, educate our listeners. And we're going to hit you with the first hard question. It's not hard. It's not hard for you. But just explain what are clinical trials? What happens during these trials? Tell us everything. Yeah, so there's lots of different kinds of clinical trials, but across the board, what you're trying to do is get an objective measurement of how well a product performs. That's it in a nutshell. So if you want to look at, okay, how well does this moisturizer hydrate the skin? You can like get a device that measures the amount of hydration in the skin. You can say, oh, okay, I have an increase in hydration of 150% after using this moisturizer. Great. If you want to look at fine lines, wrinkles, texture, lots of different things, pore size, all those things, you can get those in a clinical trial in a very objective way. Like you can get a device that basically takes a picture of your face 
And then you can run like different algorithms and codes on that image to say, oh, this wrinkle has decreased by X percent. Number of wrinkles has gone down by this. Oh, the pores are shrunk by this percent. These really analytical ways to look at the things that we all look at when we look in the mirror to make those really consumer-friendly claims. Think that we all love seeing like, oh, this decreases wrinkles by 85%. I love that. It's vague, but it's like, oh, like that number means something to have those objective things. Because if you just have a moisturizer, it's like, okay, it says it does all this. But if you see numbers and you see results, it's like, oh, okay, I want to invest in this. So it's just a way for a brand to substantiate, okay, we have the chops to say what we are going to say about this product. So I guess the reason why I, we really wanted you on the podcast, though, is because now every brand is throwing numbers on their packaging. <laughs> like 99% of people saw increased hydration or like 70% of, you know, people tested said their eyelashes were longer or whatever. And we've talked about this before, but like we have talked to founders who are like, yeah, that brand literally just went around the office and asked people to try on the new formula. And then they came <laughs> back the next day and they were like, hydrated. Yeah, great. But what you're saying is objective is a really big part of it. And that means utilizing things like what? Instruments and devices, because there are actual ways to measure these things. Exactly. Exactly. There are ways to measure the depth of a wrinkle over time. There are ways to measure, okay, like improvement in texture over time. There are ways to do that. They're expensive, but you can do all these things and get all these really nice results. But the cost of it makes it like, okay, do we want to invest in all of these very technical clinical studies for this product? Would you say that like when you are looking for skincare products or when you're advising people when they are shopping for skincare products, should they only be looking for brands that are doing clinical trials? Absolutely not. And that's coming from me. And I've been studying clinical trials for over six years. It's been a long time for me. And if I only bought from brands that did clinical trials, I'd have so few options. And I think that you know, not everyone is so results driven. Like some people, it's like, oh, I like this serum because it smells nice and it's a really important part of my self care routine. And like, even for me, like, I'm very results driven, but there are products that I like because I like how they smell. I like the texture and those things. So if you are going for results, it's something that you can take into account. But also, just because something isn't tested doesn't mean it doesn't work. And that's the other thing, because like there are small brands that make incredible products, but don't have the capital to do an $80,000, $100,000 clinical study. And it's like, okay, you look at reviews, you look at word of mouth, you look at influencers, you look at all those other things that also matter. Because like I've had products that have great clinicals and then I get it and I open it. And it's like, oh, this smells like dog poop. <laughs> I, I hate that. <laughs> I, I don't want to put this on my face. No trust. We understand on a cellular level. So I guess then my question is, I just want to get to the bottom of how we know when a test or a trial or a study is legit. I mean, I think, you know, because you have the experience, for instance, there was a brand that came out and they said they had clinicals and we were like, yeah, great. But we didn't see a, a B&A. We didn't see any before and afters. Like there was none of that on the website, which was a little concerning for us. So how does like the normal consumer who is not even remotely in the beauty industry know whether it's BS or not? 
it's hard. It's hard. I wish I had a better answer because the people who are, you know, looking at this information and then kind of feeding it through marketing know what to show and what not to show. And it's like, okay, we're going to spin this as well. But there are lots of brands who will say like in an independent study, that's really important because that means, okay, we sent product to a facility, they ran the study, they have no skin in the game. It just is okay. And here are your numbers and that's it. So looking at the independent study bit and a lot of brands who do that will tell you that they did that, we'll include that in there. The other piece is when it comes to like the the clinical side of things is whether it's an actual clinical study or like you were talking about Kirby, the more perception kind of things where it says, okay, 70% of people saw this and so simple, like, you know, agree this. And a lot of the times that's a separate thing where you'll have this product, you'll send it to a facility or go around the office and ask, okay, do you agree that this hydrates, that this is like your lashes are longer or whatever? Those can still be done independently, but that's just consumer perception, which is still important because even if the numbers say, okay, this has a 12% reduction in wrinkles, but if somebody uses it and says, well, I didn't see anything, then it's like, well, then what was the point? Because like there's the numbers piece and then there's the actual like consumer piece. And they're both really important parts of a very complex store, which is just, does the product work and like, will it work for you? Okay. See, learning so much from you because I was like, who cares about consumer perception? Like, I mean, I feel like anecdotal evidence is great. Like, especially if you're experiencing it yourself, right? Like you do have a personal experience with something. So it's like someone can hate La Mer, but like, I love La Mer because it really does work for my skin. I see results from La Mer, right? It's like you could get into arguments online about whether a product works for you or not. And personal experience is important. But I love that you're saying that the consumer perception study, it does go hand in hand with these more clinical numbers-driven studies as well. Yeah, exactly. Because like I said, you can have stats and all the numbers and everything that say these results, but those numbers don't always translate to how a person experiences the product, which is something that's really important. So it's important to, in my opinion, to have both of those things. And you can actually do them at the same time. There are a lot of facilities who will say, okay, we're going to run your clinical study and get all these measurements. But at the same time, we're going to do a questionnaire after four weeks and eight weeks. So the people who are in this can say, have you seen an improvement in your skin? Do you think that your fine lines are diminished or anything like that? Because when you have the marriage of the stats say this and the people who are in it say this, that creates a really good story around the product. It's like we did this objective measurement, but we also talked to the people and said, okay, they also saw the results. And I think that it all together just makes a really good story as to how well a product actually works. And is this the same across the seas, like in other countries? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's no like regulation or like a standard way to do it. It's everyone has their labs that they choose. Like it's all different. Exactly. Exactly. So there are some things that are like in like Korea and Japan, for example, will have, okay, if you want to claim something as brightening, then that's a very specific kind of study that you have to do. But for the most part, for just a general cosmetic claims, and yeah, it just depends on the lab. It depends on what they do. But yeah, there, there's no standardization across the world that says, okay, if you want to claim this, you have to do this kind of study. 
This is kind of a dumb question. I never say we have dumb questions, but I do think this is dumb. Is clinical trial and clinical study the same thing? Is that interchangeable? Yes, they are completely interchangeable. Just it depends on who you're talking to. That wasn't dumb, Kirby. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks for reinforcing that I'm not an idiot. I just wanted to make sure because sometimes I'm like, I don't know what I don't know, right? And this is not my lane. So I just, I wanted to ask Dr. Sass. (laughs) So for consumer perception studies, would you say that like, if there's no numbers, but some brand is like 70% of, you know, patients saw or like not patients, like consumers, what what would they say? 70% of users, patients, testers, whatever. <laughs> testies, not testies. Oh my God, not testies. <laughs> not testies. 70% of consumers said that they saw lengthening in volume in their mascara or lashes or whatever. Like, that's a way to tell that was a consumer perception study. Yes, exactly. Anything that says, okay, anything that includes like a, a user component or, oh, we saw this, that's the consumer perception piece. Which is usually typically like makeup, like mascara, eyeliner. Yeah, yeah. Those are all things that you can test for. But for like makeup, it's normally a lot more compelling, I think, unless you're going for like lash lengthening, things like that. But for makeup, it is just a lot of like, it's that visual component and doing a clinical on a foundation makes no sense. So it, it is just that consumer component that is so compelling. It's like, okay, you know, X amount of people thinks that, you know, skin tone was even, thinks that it's full coverage, all this was lengthened. They, all those things are much more easily explained in a consumer perception sense than trying to figure out how do I do a clinical for how waterproof this mascara is? Like, am I going to have someone dipping their face in a bucket of water over and over again? <laughs> like, how are we going to do this? They're not going to spend $100,000 on that. But I would say, don't you think that now with foundation becoming more like skincare and then making all these skincare claims with vitamin C and an even skin tone and all this stuff? Yeah, it's like, okay, so then shouldn't they be doing, if you're going to tell me I'm going to put on a foundation and literally when I take that foundation off, my skin is going to be more even toned. I want to see the clinicals on that. Yeah, like especially when they're like over time. Yeah. That would be ideal because there is so much of a blend now with like, oh, it's like makeup meets skincare. I feel like it has been every brand's new thing with, with their launches. It's like, oh, we're combining the two together. We're revolutionary. And like, here's the thing. When you're going through the claim substantiation piece, if a brand has like a legal team and they're saying, okay, how do we make these claims? What will happen is essentially if you have an ingredient in the product that does the thing that you're claiming it to do, then it's fine. You don't have to have a test to say that it does that. So if you have a product that you just threw, you know, uh, you know, 0.01% of hyaluronic acid, 0.01% of vitamin C in there, and you say, okay, this is going to brighten and hydrate, and you just have to say, this ingredient does that, and this ingredient does that, they don't have to test that. It's like, we can easily make that claim. Because if anyone comes to you and says, well, no, this ingredient does those things, so what are you going to do? But with makeup, it's so interesting. Like, it's not the same as skincare. Like, a moisturizer is going to sink into your skin, and you're going to get all those benefits. But with makeup, it's supposed to sit on top of the skin. So having a product that is going to sit on top of your skin and have ingredients that are all supposed to get into your skin, it's like a two-in-one job. It's possible. 
it's hard. So A, like makeup with skincare things, I'm always like a little bit hesitant because I'm like, is it actually able to get in? Because the whole point of this product is to sit on top of the skin. Like that's the whole point. So is it possible? Yes. Do I put a, a lot of sock in it? Eh. Totally. And that's like kind of what I was wanting to talk to you about. Like, that's why I, we wanted you on the podcast, because I feel like we get these companies, they include a vitamin C, like let's say L-ascorbic acid, right? Like extremely well-studied, been around for a while, and they throw it in whatever product they have, and they make these claims about it, but they're utilizing the studies that have been done, not how efficacious it is within their own formulation. Totally. But how do we know? How do we know? So then we have to rely on the consumer perception study and see how it worked for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, you have to rely on people's experiences because if the brand is not going to do it, then there's no one who's going to do it. Essentially, because there's no motivation to have any independent organization run that test on those products. And just doing clinical trials for cosmetics in general is so uncommon because it's not necessary. It would be helpful and be so useful for lots of the claims that you're trying to make. But there's no international agency that says, if you claim that your foundation brightens and you have to do these three different things to claim that. So you have to rely on other people's experiences and that's all that you have, which sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Really quick question. You mentioned the dollar amount of like how much these tests cost. You said like 80,000 to 100,000. Is that like pretty standard? Uh, it depends on where you do it. There are studies that you can do in like places like Brazil that are less expensive. And Brazil is actually a really common place to do clinical trials. And the reason why is because since Brazil is such a diverse place, you can get results on a lot of different skin tones. Like you have so many different communities that, that, that are there in a relatively small area. You can say, okay, I have results in this product on Fitzpatrick 2, so like lighter skin tones, all the way up to like five or six, so like those darker skin tones. And those tend to be less expensive, but $80,000 for like, I don't know, an eight to 12 week anti-aging study to me is like pretty normal. That's being run like in the US, that's that's pretty normal. But yeah, it's it's gnarly. What does double blind mean when, in terms of a study? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to walk you all through a clinical trial so we can go through this entire like fun process. So let's say that Los Angeles is starting a skincare line that has this star peptide. It's Kirby Sarah 5000, <laughs> all right? <laughs> it's this, this star peptide. It's like, okay, it's going to turn back the clock by 40, 50 years. It's going to hydrate your skin 3,000%. All these amazing claims that you're trying to make. It's going to change the world. So because that would be like, okay, this is a new ingredient that, that you're trying to figure out. What you want to do first is make sure, okay, does this ingredient do what we think it's going to do. I'm assuming that you've done tests like in the lab and say, okay, this looks like it'll do this on the cells in a dish. And then we say, all right, does it work on people? Well, what you would do is you'd have two groups. One group would be the control and one group would be the active group. And what you would do is you'd give each person in each of those groups the product. And that product would either be the control or the placebo, which is just a cream or a serum or whatever. Then the active group is that same product, but it has the Kirby Sarah 5000. 
in it. Now, the people who are in those groups should not know what group they are in. Because if they're doing a self-assessment and they know they're in the active group, then that's going to bias how they answer those questions. It's like when you're using, you know, a retinol for the first time and two days later, you're just like, oh my God, I have young, firm, tight skin. It's been two days because you know, it's like, it has to be because I've been using a retinol and it, it's going to bias how you view your own skin. So the people who are actually in the study should not know which group they're in. So that's the single blind. Double blind is when additionally, the people who are administering the study don't know which group each person is in. So if you have some kind of external person coming in and looking at people's faces, if you, for example, a common thing is to have a dermatologist come in and look at people's skin during the study and they'll give like a grade on like dark spots texture. If that derm knows who's in what group, that could also bias their results. So ideally, in a double-blind study, the people who are in charge of getting the data for the study and the people who are in the study will not know who's in what group. Only the people who analyze the data at the end know who's in what group. So they know, okay, these results are actually the results. So you'll have these two groups, one placebo, one active. They'll have you know, an eight-week anti-aging study. And, and at the end, what you'll be able to see is, okay, people who just use the cream have this much result, but on the cream plus the Kirby Sarah 5000 have this much result. And you can definitively say that the addition of the Kirby Sarah 5000 had, you know, wrinkle depth decreased by X percent and all those things. And you know that that's the thing that made those results happen. Because if you just gave people the cream with the Kirby Sarah 5000, but did not have a control, you wouldn't know what was actually doing the thing. Because if you put, you know, a moisturizer on your face for eight weeks, your skin's going to be more, more hydrated, obviously. So if you add in that ingredient, you have those two separate groups, then you know, okay, in this double blind placebo controlled study, we know that Kirby Sarah 5000 is the best anti-aging cream on the market. So that's how it would all look. Kirby Sarah 5000 is coming at you. Okay, can you explain what, and can you tell by these questions that Kirby and I were not bio or chem majors, what a randomized study is? Yeah, so basically for randomized is when essentially you're just randomizing who's in what group as they come in. Because sometimes you'll have, okay, the first 15 people are in group A and the next 15 people are in group B. But essentially when it's randomized, you'll have everyone enroll and then randomly kind of throw, okay, you're in A, you're in B and whatever, just so there's no consistency across the groups. Because you could have a study where you have an entirety of one demographic in one group and another demographic in another group because you want to kind of skew the results in your favor a little bit. And an example, and I've seen this, is running, running like an anti-aging study, but having certain age groups in one group and certain age groups in another group to kind of skew what those anti-aging results will look like. So if it's random, then you don't have that. So the random part is really important. Spoiler alert, Julian's going to be featured in a story that I'm working on about sunscreen obviously about sunscreen. And one thing that we talked about is how a lot of times when these marketing claims are a mineral sunscreen with zero white cast, they're not testing on people that have deep and dark skin tones. And there's no way, there's no baseline, there's nothing that regulates, you know, making sure 
that there is an equal amount of deep and dark skin tones as compared. But then we also talked about the fact that if you have a deep or dark skin tone, that you may not experience redness or eurythma. Is that the correct? Arrhythmia. Arrhythmia. Eurythmia. What did I say? Eurythmics. Urethra. I almost said urethra. <laughs> Eurythmics. That's <laughs> not okay. Talking about testes and urethras over here. Okay, but because deep and dark skin tones don't experience the redness as easily as maybe someone that has a more fair skin tone, it's kind of like, well, it's just so convoluted and crazy. It's hard. And I mean, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but in sunscreen testing, because of how it's tested with that minimum erythemal dose, basically, you're looking at how much. UV um, simulated, it takes for the skin to get red. For all those tests, it has to be between Fitzpatrick skin tones one through three. So very, very light to like medium skin tones. So if you're using those skin tones, then of course it's going to look like zero white cast. And how can you like feel good about yourself as a founder and you're selling the sunscreen and making these claims when you've only really tested on those skin tones? Yeah, I mean, for the like SPF testing, it does have to be those one through three skin tones, but it is really as simple as, all right, we're going to get in touch with some influencers. We're going to send them, uh, you know, a sample of the product. How do you like to take a picture of it on and then send it back? And that's it. Like, it doesn't need to be this laborious, expensive test. It's just, okay, or find somebody in the office who has darker skin tone. Okay, hey, take it off of this and put it on. But again, the problem is with the amount because, you know, we'll have brands that will say, all right, here's my little tea drop and I'll rub it in. And it's like, oh my God, it's completely no white cast. Like, well, of course you put a tea drop on somebody's entire body. Like, of course it's not going to have a white cast. So yeah, it's frustrating. And because there's no regulation around those things, it is just, it's a crapshoot, basically. Just so frustrating. Julian, you're also giving brands too much credit that they might actually have a black person in their office. I said it and I was like... <laughs> First thing that I thought and I was like... <laughs> Absolutely. Horrifying to say, but like, I mean... Absolutely true. I am well aware. We're, we're almost done with you. <laughs> we're almost done with you. So let's go on to drug claims. I am fascinated with this topic right now because it is a big, buzzy topic on social. There are claims that cosmetics can make, but there are claims they cannot make because they are drug claims. Can you share what some drug claims are? There's a spectrum in my mind. So there are the claims that specifically say this treats this disease. Examples. Acne is a disease. Melasma is a disease. Hyperpigmentation is classified as a disease as well. Eczema, disease as well. So treating any of those kinds of diseases is considered a drug claim because there are drugs that are made to treat those claims and cosmetics cannot claim to do those. So what lots of brands will do is sort of like kind of get around that by saying, okay, suitable for acne prone skin is fine, but you can't say that a product that is not like an OTC drug that has like salicylic acid, benzoyl peroxide or sulfur that says, oh, this will treat your acne. You can't do that. So there's lots of ways like, oh, it's a, it's a clarifying serum or, you know, it's great for, for blemish prone skin, things like that. Anything that you're claiming to like treat a disease, there's that. Then there's the other side of it, which is where basically you're impacting the function of the skin. 
So for example, if you're trying to say that, you know, vitamin C increases collagen production, that is a function of the skin that cosmetics technically cannot do because it's supposed to be something that's all about the appearance. So rather than saying, okay, increases collagen production, then you'd say, okay, diminishes the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Now we all know that, you know, vitamin C, retinol, glycolic acid will increase collagen production, but because that's a function of the skin, then they can't claim that on the packaging in theory. Oh, interesting. Anything about the function of the skin and how it works You cannot claim that a cosmetic does that. The nice term that I've seen used by like on the legal side is if you can't claim it for a foundation, then you can't claim it for a skincare product, which is also very annoying when you have products that you know are going to give you those functional results, but you can't claim it on the packaging. So while it's true that the regulations and the science don't really match up because we know there are these ingredients that do have that, because you have this other side of it, people who are trying to get treatments for acne, melasma, eczema, things like that, that's why those regulations are in place. Make sure that people aren't being misled because, okay, this cream that said it's going to treat my eczema it didn't work. Why didn't it work? And it's like, well, because this was just a cosmetic. So there are lots of ways to get around those things, but like those are the general two categories in my mind of drug claims. So treatment of a disease and affecting the function of the skin. Wow. Okay. That's life-changing. I mean, I think there's a reason why we don't see melasma thrown out there very often. And as someone who has melasma, when people make statements like, oh, it's great for melasma. I'm like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. My melasma is hormonal. So unless you're literally like removing my IUD for me, I don't see changes actually happening. You know what I mean? But there are things that can brighten, right? There are some things that can fade acne scarring or hyperpigmentations from an acne scar. But it's interesting. Now I feel like you have to go and look and see how those are presented on the packaging. Yeah, exactly. Because it is always like a really like tricky line that you're trying to cross because they're in place for a reason, but you also want to, from a marketing perspective, get across that, you know, this product works and you're going to have brighter skin. You're going to have a more even skin tone. Your blemishes will, will decrease and whatever. But it's always interesting to see like how the wording has to be. Let's go back to this melasma example. So could you do like a consumer perception study and say that the people testing it have melasma and they used the product and felt like their skin looked brighter? So you could, but you'd have to phrase the question where it says, okay, you saw, you know, your melasma is less visible. And even that is very dicey because melasma in general is like, okay, you're still in the disease sort of realm, but you can say, okay, in these people who have, I don't know, melasma prone skin or whatever, saw visibly brighter skin. So you can weave that story in a very kind of circuitous way. But yeah, it's it, it's lots of hoops to try and jump through if you want to do things kind of by the book. I had no idea I had a disease. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> Thank you for going through all of that. That was so much information. It was so informative. We appreciate you so, so much. We want to end with going full circle back to sunscreen. So you talked about looking for sunscreens outside of the U.S. 
Can you talk a little bit about what you look for maybe ingredients wise or what you look for on the label when it comes to shopping for these certain sunscreens? And also, do you have any preferred websites that you trust? Because I'm scared of Amazon frauds. <laughs> yeah, Amazon is always really dicey when it comes to what you're going to buy. <laughs> I've been brought it, I think, twice now with things on Amazon. It's like, that's not what I ordered. So things I look for on the packaging. In general, I like looking for water-resistant sunscreens. Now, they do tend to be a little bit heavier, a little bit on the greasy side, especially if you're in the U.S. The reason why I like that is because when you do a sunscreen test, if you're just getting the SPF test, that was one test that was done and then that's the number, great. When you have water resistance, that had to go through at least two tests. You should have to do a test before and then after the immersion in water. So it's basically an extra kind of reassurance that, all right, this product is going to deliver the SPF that it says on the bottom. And know that to get that water resistant claim, that's an extra level of testing that they had to do. So I like water resistant. For ingredients, I don't love the mineral sunscreens because I tend to look crazy with the minerals. That's <laughs> just um, a general experience for me personally. And a lot of people love minerals, but for me, it's just not it. It's just not it. I look crazy. So don't love those. And then when it comes to where to shop, if you're looking for from this outside of the US, if you're trying to get like European, I think that Care2 Beauty is a really great place for European cosmetics. Everything's like verified through their shipping is very, very fast. I think they're coming from Portugal, I think. So Care2 Beauty for European sunscreens, if you're trying to go like more the Korean, Japanese route, Style Vana is my place of choice or Olive Young. Olive Young is great for lots of the Korean stuff. And then for Australia, which I feel like is a, that, that's a whole nother realm, Chemist Warehouse. It's expensive to ship from here <laughs> to, ship to, to the U.S. from here. But Chemist Warehouse carries lots of the Australian sunscreens. And it's nice because a lot of their like drugstore products are really, really good. Like a lot of the drugstore formulas here are just not really that great. It's like, okay, this is a chemical sunscreen, but I have a white cast and that's crazy. That That's something else. If you like a more matte finish, a lot of those mattifying agents that are put into sunscreens to make them less greasy can leave a white cast on darker skin tones. So like silica is a really common example. So if you're looking at, at a sunscreen and you see like silica as like the second ingredient, just like, it doesn't mean it will be a white cast, but it's a possibility. So just kind of like keep an eye out for that. But yeah, those are my quick three like sunscreen shopping guides if you want to you know go down the realm of just non-us products because the quality is better outside of the us and that's just the truth i hadn't heard of the last one i'm like excited to go shop after this yeah yeah chemist warehouse yeah you and i need to make a bulk order sarah uh, yeah let's do it we'll share shipping seriously also glams we have a discount code for stylevana if y'all aren't perusing our shop our shelf you should be because we have all kinds of discounts from from retailers and brands on there i will make sure that we have it written in the show notes i can't remember if it's gloss angeles or gloss but you can get 10 percent off your order from stylevana if you use that code so julian thank you so much of course this was so fun thank you for having me on we adore you keep running through those sunscreens just let us know Will do. I just hit 300 on the database, which is crazy. That's incredible. 
truly miraculous, like the time and effort you put into this. And I see you going through and doing all like the mathematics of it all and like figuring out. So, I mean, this is like a really intensive sunscreen database, everyone. Go check them out. Where can everybody find you online? Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Scamander14. That's S-C-A-M-A-N-D-E-R, number one, number four. My database is at Scamander14.com. But yeah, I'm around. I'm on the internet. Having a great time. All right, that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts. I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. Los Angeles was created by us, Kirby Johnson and Sarah Tan. It's part of the ACAST network and licensed by Vice Media Group. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.